Our text is Psalm 20. Psalm 20. And we'll make three points. They're there in your outline. May the Lord answer in verses 1 through 5. He will answer verses 6 through 8 and then answer us in verse 9. So first, then, may the Lord answer. What we have in this text, Psalm 20, is a congregational prayer for the king. He's on the eve of a battle. And the people are praying for him. They're praying that his sacrifices and his prayers would be accepted by the Lord that he might prevail in this upcoming battle. You can see that in the repeated word, may, at the beginning of all verses 1 through 5. May the Lord, may he, may he, may we shout. And they pray this way because they see themselves and their national life, their identity, as bound to the king. They see themselves as one people covenanted together. This is often called, they see them, seeing themselves as one corporate person. This is hard, I think, for people who have not grown up in monarchies or certain types of societies to understand. Particularly difficult for U.S. and United States individualists to grasp. There's no myth of rugged individualism in Israel. There's the king and Israel and her institutions. The same basic idea should apply to us under Christ the king where our fundamental solidarity is with the body of Christ throughout the nations. So, the king is the head of Israel. And what this means is, his salvation is their salvation. And his victory is their victory. And the fate of the nations determined by the fate of the king. So in verse 1 they pray, May the Lord answer you. Meaning, may the Lord answer you, O king. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. And the distress here is a military confrontation. We'll see that a little bit later. May the name of God, or may the name of the God of Jacob, protect you. The name of God is a key theme in this psalm. It's mentioned three times. We see it here, and you can see it in verse 5, and you can see it in verse 7. God's name is his self-revelation. He unveils himself. It is a way of expressing God's nearness to you. His ownership of his people. The name is not magic. Or a certain set of syllables which if we chant them become something like a charm. That's not what the name of God means. God is never under our control. God's name is God present in word and in works. And so his name is his presence, his power, his person. 
That's what we mean by God's name. It's a rich, multifaceted way of speaking of God. God's name is God. More particularly, God's name is God in action. God in action to save and to protect his people. The psalmist knows God's name. Again, not just the letters, the reality. He knows the name. He's clearly meditated on the name. And because he cherishes the name, he invokes the name. May the name of the God of Jacob defend or protect you. Now, this is an interesting phrase, the name of the God of Jacob. God of Jacob is shorthand for God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this designation is important. Of course, you see it throughout the Old Testament. Even a casual reader of the Old Testament knows the importance of God calling himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But this designation was used by God of himself to Moses at the burning bush. There God said, I am who I am. That is... I am the self-existing one, the eternal one, the self-defining one, the self-determined one. I am who I am. The one who lives, who is from himself, who depends on nothing, receives nothing. The one who is infinitely full and replete with life. Infinitely glorious. I am who I am. And that one tells Moses, the I am who I am tells him, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am the Lord. Yahweh is my name, meaning I am the covenant God of Israel. The significance of this lies here. God is transcendent in his self-sufficient glory. He's undetermined by time. He's utterly distinct from anything created. He cannot be compared to anything. This is why you'll see Isaiah and the prophets constantly saying, to whom will you compare me? Nevertheless, he says to Moses that that one enters history as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He enters the history of Israel. And he reveals himself. For he can be known in no other way. You can't get from here to God by being sharp or by reasoning. He reveals himself as the Lord, Jacob's God, Israel's God, the God of the Exodus. To Moses, the God who comes down, who saves us in our distress and in our bondage. It's the multifaceted name of that God, the God of Jacob, which is being invoked here in this text as the king's protection. All of that and a lot more lies behind. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. The text says, 
May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. The sanctuary is the near place, the earthly location where God chooses to dwell and to place this name. God places his name at the sanctuary. This is a mystery as well. God, though present everywhere, and he's present everywhere in infinite fullness, he is infinitely fully present here and here. He's not partially present here and a little more over here. Infinitely present every place. Nevertheless, resides in the sanctuary, places his divine name there in a unique way. He sits enthroned between the cherubim and the Holy of Holies. That's at least the fundamental significance of the sanctuary. It's God's throne room, his earthly residence. And it's made, this earthly sanctuary where Israel worshipped, it's made after a heavenly pattern, an archetype. Heaven itself, God's sanctuary throne room. And so Israel understood that their sanctuary was a replica of the heavenly sanctuary. And because that's true, it means from Zion, Israel's sanctuary, God's help comes. God helps you here in gathered corporate public worship. Because you have come to Mount Zion, Hebrews 12 tells us. In fact, this text is, if we, if we sort of move it over into the New Testament, transpose it, it's a text which reminds us about the central importance, the unique presence of God in the public worship of the saints, whereby the ministry of the word and the sacraments and the corporate praise and prayer of the saints, God makes his name known. He who is everywhere is uniquely and savingly present here. Next, the psalmist, he prays that God would remember all the king's sacrifices. I mean, the king, too, has to go to the temple. He has to make offerings. He wants them to accept his, the king's burnt offerings and his, his atonement offerings. The sanctuary is entered by atoning sacrifice, graciously provided by God. Which is why, by the way, we have a confession of sins early in the service. No atonement, no sanctuary access. Now, sacrifices in the ancient world are an interesting thing. Often, sanctuaries... And sacrifices were viewed magically as ways to manipulate, ways to placate the gods. The way a lot of people view going to church and God these days, sort of magically. I did this, God's taken care of. But this has a long history. This is not a uniquely modern phenomenon. It's part and parcel of the human heart's innate Desire to justify itself. 
But this view of sacrifices and uh, temple uh, cultic worship, this most definitely is not the case in Israel. The sacrifices here are not brought by human ingenuity. It's important to see this in Israel's system. The sacrifices are commanded and provided by God. And so their sanctuary is not a magic place. It's a replica of the heavenly sanctuary where God's name dwells. So it is the name of God, the ineffable God, which controls this text. It governs everything here, and it's to prevent Israel from turning its sanctuary and its sacrifices into magical acts. This is no little temptation, right? In the history of churches, especially liturgical churches, churches with formal public worship, people have learned how to turn their worship into a magical act, right? People, we are very good at going through the motions, at pretending. Israel, though it was warned repeatedly about this, repeatedly fell into it. You might remember the the famous prophecy of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7, where he says, do not say to yourselves, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Because this temple is not going to help you when the Babylonians come in and burn it down and take you into exile. You think the temple is some sort of sacred place that I can't destroy? Christians get this way with their institutions, with their ministries, with their buildings, with their houses of worship. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, they treat it like some sort of magical holy thing. And God's regularly just having them burned, disrupted. Because it's the name that matters, right? The order here is important. The name of God, that name then the sanctuary, then the sacrifices. We are too quick to pass over the infinite fullness of the name of the God of Jacob and say, okay, now let's get to what the text really means for me. Oh, it's about the sanctuary, and then the sanctuary becomes magical. I say this only because it's deep in Israel's history. So help and support and protection, even when they come in the context of the sanctuary and the sacrifices, they come from the name of the God of Jacob, the fount of every blessing. And so the prayer continues by asking for the king's desire and his plans. And here his plans mean his battle plans in this case. They pray that they would succeed. The psalmist knows the futility and the frailty of of such plans apart from the Lord of battles, right? As a military proverb, every plan is a good plan until the first shot is fired. Plans go awry. And so they pray for the king's plans. And finally, they pray in anticipation that the people would shout for joy over the king's victory. And they do this as an orderly array of tribes. They would lift up their banners, meaning celebrate the victory. And they would do that in the name of the God, the God of Jacob, with whom this prayer began. That's the prayer of the people. 
It's a prayer of the people that the Lord would answer the king's prayer. So the second point is that he will answer. And here we we move to this sort of declaration of confidence, a settled assurance. The speaker changes from we and our in the first part of the psalm to a single individual. Now this I know. Scholars have called this psalm a pre-battle liturgy. And at, at this point in the liturgy, an individual speaker steps forth and speaks. This I know. The Lord gives victory, or he saves his anointed. Here for the first time, first time in the text, we're told who the prayer is for. I've been saying it from the beginning, but this is the first time the psalm says it. It is for the Lord's anointed one, for the Davidic king. It's because the Lord is covenanted to the Davidic monarchy that the prayer can strike this confident note of victory. Well, the text says he answers the king from his heavenly sanctuary. In verse 2, it was from Zion, the earthly replica. Here it's clear that help comes from the heavenly sanctuary. And God answers the king with the saving strength of his right hand. One of the great themes of the Old Testament is that this God, the God with this name, is a warrior God. In the sense that he defends and protects and fights for his people. Verse 7, very well-known verse, maybe the most well-known verse in this psalm. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The, the pagan kings, as many modern rulers, saw chariots and horses, military might, as an object of trust, an object of veneration. A little mini cult in itself. And the world is drenched in the blood of these chariots and horses, these armies, depicted as the four horsemen of Revelation chapter 6. Now Israel, it's important to see this, Israel certainly had an army. But it was not to be an object of faith and veneration. The army is not to be an object of faith and veneration. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Israel, then, is is to trust not in military might, but in the God of armies, the warrior God of Israel, the name of the God of Jacob. That's why the name is so important. This name is so weighty, so real, so pulsatingly thick with reality that you don't need an army if you're this this God's people. Or you don't need much of one. The name is what Israel is to trust. And that's why David says to Goliath, You come before me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. So it turns out that there's some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, is not just a child's song or just a pious nicety. It has real public policy implications for Israel. So while the text here is not advocating pacifism, certainly not doing that, 
Neither is it approving an aggressive militarism. It's a rebuke to that kind of thing. Deuteronomy 17, in the law of God, forbids the kings of Israel to multiply horses. Forbids it. They are not to engage in perpetual military buildups. The Psalms and the prophets are full of this stuff. Now, modern Americans in our circles are blind to these rebukes for some reason. They can't see them or read them, but they're all over there. The prophets are warning the people and the rulers about, take Psalm 33, for example. This is just one of a half a dozen examples we could evoke. Psalm 33 says, no king, meaning no Israelite king, is saved by the size of his army. Think of that. No king is saved by the size of his army. We can cut 50% out of all political speeches with just Psalm 33. No warrior, Psalm 33 continues, no warrior escapes by his own strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Who says that in American political life? We say the opposite of this all the time. Our horses are old and they need to be brought up to date and we need more horses. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, and now I'm quoting Psalm 33 again, despite all of its great strength, it cannot save, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. Trusting in the name, in the name of the Lord relativizes and restricts military power in Israel. It does so by decree, by law, in Deuteronomy 17 and other places. And it does this because it's exalting the sanctuary worship of the name as the thing of decisive importance. This is not, by the way, given the name of the God of Jacob, a liability. It's not a liability. The psalmist is confident that this means they shall fall and we shall rise. If you have this God, you still need a military. Yes, you do. But it doesn't have to be the biggest one around. Israel's was never the biggest one around. They, they never had a military that can compare with the Babylonian Empire, or the Persians, or the Syrians, or the Egyptians. They never had anything on that. So they're a tiny little nation. Finally, Answer us. Verse 9, Lord, give victory to the king. This is a summary of the whole text. Give victory to the king. Thus the title. But in spite of the confidence expressed here, it is still clear at the end of the psalm, the victory is still future. The last line of the text is, answer us when we call. Notice that the first line of the poem was, May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. And the last line is, Answer us if we call. If the Lord answers the king, the head of the nation, he answers the people. That's the way Israelites thought. He hears their cries if he hears the cries of the king. Now, this psalm is a particularly clear example of how we can see how to read the Psalms in the light of Christ. This, this one is one of the clearer ones of how we can see David as pointing to his greater son. 
the one who fulfills all the promises of kingship. Jesus, the everlasting Davidic king. All the cries of Israel, the prayers of verses 1 through 5, are heard and finally answered in Jesus Christ. Here's one thing you can say about Psalm 20 in the Old Testament. If you prayed it before a battle in Israel, you might win and you might lose. Sometimes you'd win, sometimes you'd lose. But they're all heard and they're all definitively answered in Christ. God answered him in his distress as the Davidic king. God gave him heavenly aid for his life of obedience and conflict with the forces of darkness. He prayed to be saved from death, to be delivered, and ironically, by dying, he was heard. God remembers and upholds and honors forever the sacrifice, the burnt offering which he offered, indeed which he became. You can go back to verses 1 through 5. And reread it with Jesus as the king. The desires of his heart, his plans, his strategy for his ferocious warfare were all favored by God and vindicated. And so that God has given him a decisive victory. A once for all victory through the cross. The cross where the warrior God wages battle in meekness. And in self-giving love. Ultimately, when you think of God as Israel's warrior, you're going to have to think of that place as the place of battle. And through the scepter of the cross, his enemies are disarmed. They are brought down and fallen. He is risen, raised to the right hand of God, where he stands upright, enthroned. And he could have trusted in the power of the sword. His disciples wanted to use swords. He could have trusted in legions of armies, uh, of angels. But in him, in Jesus, we see the perfect, unblemished trust in the name of the God of Jacob. In him, indeed, we see the name of the God of Jacob made flesh. Jesus, the Lord, our victory. And this is why in him, as our king, our salvation is secure. We can, be, we can strike the note of confidence in this psalm because he has bound himself to us by covenant. And his triumph is your triumph. And so what do we do now that he's triumphed? We do what the psalm says. We lift up our banners, if you will. We celebrate. We hail the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. And because his victory, Christ's victory, is not fully manifested, because we're still pilgrims, we can still pray verse 9 fervently. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. This is for us now a prayer for the kingdom to come in fullness, for Christ's victory to be fully manifested, and our victory in him. We're praying that the name of the God of Jacob revealed in and revealed as, revealed as Jesus Christ, 
We're praying for that name to be hallowed in the earth. Think of the richness this adds to the simple petition, hallowed be thy name. This, then, is a psalm to be prayed in gratitude for what God has done in Christ. And to be prayed in hope for the fullness of that victory to be unveiled. We are always doing this in the Christian life. Back with gratitude, forward with hope. In Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen for your sake. In him, the Lord has answered you. And in him the Lord shall answer you. The name of the God of Jacob, Jesus, has helped you. Descending from the heavenly sanctuary. And because he has, and because he's returned there victorious, it means the Lord will continue to hear you when you call. Amen.